It's a joy to be with you this evening, and uh, I'd ask if you would please open your Bibles to the book of Psalms. Uh, This morning, or this evening, we'll just be uh, taking a pause from uh, looking at uh, Proverbs. God willing, we'll be picking up with that next uh, Sunday evening. Uh, But for this evening, we want to look at uh, Psalms, and this particular time, uh, we want to look at uh, Psalms 1 and 2. And so we're going to read those two chapters together. So turn your Bibles to Psalm chapter 1. And I'll begin reading in verse 1 of that chapter. Let's give attention to the reading of God's word from Psalm chapter 1, verse 1. Hear now the word of God. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession." You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Let's bow together in a brief word of prayer. Let us pray. Father God, we give thanks uh, that you have given us your word and that as our confessional standards uh, tell us that it is in your word that the Holy Spirit is speaking. And so we give thanks, O Lord, that you continually speak through your word, through the power of the Spirit, when it is read, when it is preached. And so we pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would soften our hearts, that you would uh, enlighten the eyes of our faith that you would enable us to perceive the Lord Jesus Christ clearly on the pages of Holy Writ, and that, Lord, most importantly, we would hear what he says and that we would do it. We pray and ask that you would grant us this for your name's sake and for our edification. We pray and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Sometimes I think it is important for us to recognize that we have many blessings, things that previous generations never possessed. And one of the simplest things that we may not recognize is that we can say that for thousands of years, the people of God had the word of God, but one of the things they did not have, believe it or not, were chapter and verse divisions. You simply had the biblical text apart from chapter divisions, apart from verse divisions, And in fact, you really didn't get the versification of the scriptures until close to the 16th century, uh, which means that for uh, thousands of years, the people of God just simply read the word of God, 
and they didn't necessarily have the chapter and verse breaks that we now have so clearly marked for us in our Bibles. Now, on the one hand, we might think that, uh, you know, that, that this is a really positive development, and I certainly want to say that it is. One of the things that the chapter and verse divisions do here in the scriptures is it, it breaks up the word of God for us so that we can kind of see where there are clear divisions, where there are clear demarcations. It helps us, for example, uh, you know, with citing the scriptures. Can you imagine? Well, it's somewhere near the front end of the book of Genesis, uh, kind of in that kind of first third of it. Well, can you be more specific? No, not really. That's as close as I can get. On the other hand, as, as much of a blessing as the chapter and verse divisions are, sometimes they can actually be a hindrance to our ability to understand the biblical text, for our ability to perceive as clearly as possible what it is God is seeking to convey to us through his word. You know, I can illustrate this case in point is that how many of us have, uh, you know, we, we say have our Bible reading plan set out for the year and we do our devotions and we say that, okay, well, today I'm supposed to read chapter one, tomorrow I'm supposed to read chapter two and the next day chapter three and so on and so forth. And that, that's helpful and that's, that's, that's something that is useful to us. But on the other hand, what happens if as we're reading chapter one, that we're not supposed to stop with chapter one, but that we're supposed to continue to read on with chapter two because they're actually one literary unit, that there's, there's a, a message there that the original author intended us to take in one reading and not to break it up into two pieces. Now we might say, well, okay, that, that's not the end of the world. If I, if I read chapter one today and then maybe tomorrow, the next day I read chapter two. <clears throat> okay, true. But on the other hand, Think about what would happen, say, for example, if we, were, if we were watching that great cinematic piece of artwork known as the Star Wars trilogy, the original, mind you, uh, where you are sitting there watching The Empire Strikes Back as Darth Vader is, is battling away with, uh, with Luke Skywalker, and Darth Vader says at that pinnacle moment in the movie, Luke, I am your, and the movie stops. You'd be like, ah, what, is, what was he going to say? Assuming that you hadn't seen it before. And I won't spoil it in case you, you haven't seen it before. But Luke, I am your, ah, what happened? What's, gonna, what's, what's going on? What was he going to say? How is the story going to continue? Well, that's what I want to submit to you is what happens when we actually read Psalms 1 and 2. Psalms 1 and 2 were meant to be read together as one literary unit. One literary unit. Uh, and as helpful as the chapter and verse divisions are, what we want to do is we want to read chapter 1 and then continue reading on through the end of chapter 2. Now, what difference does this make? Well, God willing, if uh, we're doing careful Bible reading, even if we break it up over two days or we separate chapter 1 from chapter 2, hopefully we'll see the, the, the narrative flow between Psalms 1 and Psalms 2. Psalm 2. But on the other hand, one of the tendencies that there has been is that as we read Psalm 1, and particularly the phrase, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, our tendency is to think that the psalmist is simply speaking of a generic person. That he's just talking about a righteous person in general, that you will be blessed if you are righteous. 
But if we take these two chapters together, as I think the author originally intended, and we'll look at some of the features in the text to be able to see how it's one literary unit, it completely, I think, changes the reading, and it gives us a different perspective on what the psalmist is doing when we recognize this fact, that the righteous man of Psalm 1 is the Messiah of Psalm 2. Or the Messiah of Psalm 2 is the one righteous man of whom the psalmist speaks in Psalm 1. Or I can state it this way. We know that Psalm 2 is about Jesus. Well, what I'm here to say is that Psalm 1 is also about Jesus. Now, this does not in any way take away from the fact and the truths of what the psalmist says when he says here that the man is blessed who is righteous. And that there's a sense in which, yes, the psalmist is calling the people of God to righteousness, but it makes a whole world of difference. Literally, the difference between heaven and hell, the old creation and the new creation, if we recognize that the only way that we can be righteous is if we take shelter in the Messiah. And that once we take shelter in the Messiah, once we look to Jesus Christ by faith alone, by God's grace alone, that is the only way that then we can be righteous and receive the blessings that come to the righteous. If we approach the call to righteousness apart from Jesus, then literally that's the difference between heaven and hell because in and of ourselves, we are incapable of being righteous. The only way that we can be righteous is through Jesus. And so if we hold these two chapters together, hopefully we'll get a clearer picture as to who the psalmist is speaking about. First and foremost, how he is speaking about the righteous man, the Messiah. But then secondly, we will be able to see how it is that in taking shelter in Christ, that we too can receive the blessings that God gives to those who are righteous. And so what we want to do first and foremost is we want to look at the Old Testament background. Imagine this, that there is an Old Testament background even to this very passage of Scripture. And so we want to look to the promise, the promise that stands behind these two chapters. Secondly, we want to look at the prophecy here that is embedded in these two chapters and that what is, what is the prophecy? What is it that God is prophetically declaring through Psalms 1 and 2 about the enthronement of this righteous man? And then third and finally, we want to see the power uh, of which the psalmist speaks and that what are the implications of this particular passage uh, for the church, for our mission, as well as how this passage impacts uh, the, the nature of our Christian lives, the power of which we have access by faith in Christ. So we want to look at the, the, the promise, the prophecy, and the power. So that being said, let's look here first at the promise. And that before we can really understand what's going on in Psalms 1 and 2, we want to back up a little bit and rehearse a couple of important details, namely God's covenant promise to David to ensure that one of his heirs would sit upon Israel's throne. 
Recall Israel's desire to have a king. They told Yahweh they wanted to be like the surrounding nations. They weren't happy with Yahweh as their king, and they, so they wanted an earthly king. And so they chose with their eyes, they looked around and said, who's the best looking among us? Who's the, the strongest among us? Who's the tallest? Who's the most strapping around here? And their eyes fell upon Saul. Well, we all know, of course, how that turned out. When Yahweh chose Israel's king for them, he looked upon the heart. He looked upon the inside and he chose David, a man after his own heart. Now, David, of course, in many ways was a great king, but as we know, he was also a sinner. Who of us can forget David's heartfelt cry of repentance to God on the heels of his adultery and murder? Yet, as godly as David was, we also know, too, that he engaged in warfare throughout his life. And so we can see his sins. We can see his, his shortcomings. And so when David expressed his desire to build a temple for God, for his faithful covenant Lord, God told David, I appreciate it, not in so many words, but I have other plans. And we read in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and following, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So God makes David a promise. He says, one of your descendants, one of your descendants will sit upon the throne of Israel. And as the psalmist in Psalm 89 later characterizes this exchange between God and David, he, he explains it and characterizes it as a covenant promise to David, that the future king would be a physical descendant of David, that this descendant would build a house for Yahweh's name, that Yahweh would be to him a father, and that this heir would be to him a son. And if this heir, if we should say, if this heir departed from God's law, God would discipline him with the rod of men. And so through this heir, David's kingdom would be established forever. And so we can say that there's a sense in which we find an anticipatory fulfillment, a provisional fulfillment, if you will, of this covenant with David with the ascension of Solomon to the throne. He went on to build the temple, a grand temple indeed. But as we know, looking at the rest of the biblical narrative, the rest of the Old Testament, we know that this wasn't the definitive fulfillment of God's promise to David. It was a rough sketch, if you will intentional on God's part. But nevertheless, it wasn't the fulfillment. Solomon's reign, of course, did not eternally establish David's kingdom. And Solomon, in fact, ended his life mired in idolatry and adultery with his legion of wives. And in accordance with his covenantal promise, Yahweh disciplined Solomon and took away the kingdom from him. Moreover, in the subsequent history of Israel's kings, most of Israel's kings were wicked and they fell under God's disciplinary wrath. And so this is the promise that stands at the background here when God tells David, one of your heirs will sit upon the throne. Well, this brings us secondly to the prophecy. 
And that at this point in the story, as we're looking at this Old Testament uh, narrative unfold, we might be willing to settle for a flawed hero. Well, you know, there have been so many failures in the past, so many sinful people, so many sinful kings. Why can't we just settle for this one here? Why can't we just settle for David or for Solomon? We know that they're flawed, but, uh, you know, they, they come close in so many departments. They're, they're, they're close. They're godly in so many ways in spite of their faults. And so this is where I think Psalm 1 enters the picture, in that the psalmist here gives us a sterling and shining picture of one man. Not a flawed hero, not someone like David, who even though he was sinful, he nevertheless loved the Lord. He was a man after God's own heart, as true as that was. This is not the picture that the psalmist paints here. He gives us this shining image of one perfect man. And the fact that it says, blessed is the man, it's a singular term here for a man. Not as blessed in general is a person, but rather blessed is the man. There's one person in view here. And it's at this point, perfect man who has his delight upon the law of the Lord, upon which he meditates day and night, the psalmist tells us in verse 2. And this means that he yields fruit in season and out of season. Verse 3, he doesn't, and note the progression here, he doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, so he's not walking. And you can see and almost visually, you know, in your mind, see this progression of things that he doesn't do, but it also tells us what the wicked do in their conduct. He doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't stand in the way of sinners. You can think of somebody walking with someone, and as they tell you their wicked plans, they stop. And they begin to ponder, and they begin to think. And then they go from walking to standing and then to sitting because they decide to take up with the wicked. Not so with this righteous man. He doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't stand in the way of sinners, nor does he sit in the seat of the scoffer. And in fact, what's important here is that in verse 6, the the, the psalmist specifically identifies this man as somebody who is righteous. Somebody who is righteous. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Why? He delights in the law. The Lord knows this man is righteous. Well, what does it mean to be righteous? To be righteous is to be in perfect conformity to the law. It means not only have you avoided the sins, but that you have positively fulfilled the obligations of the law. Not only have you steered clear of adultery, which is what the law enjoins upon us, but implicitly in this is the idea that you have loved your wife. Not only have you not stolen, but you have freely given of your possessions to those who are in need. Not only have you refrained from speaking evil against your neighbor, but in fact you have said good things to your neighbor. This is what it means to be righteous, and this is the nature of the conduct of this blessed man, this blessed man who is righteous. And it's because of this one man's righteous status, his perfect law-keeping, his perfect obedience, that he and he alone 
is qualified to ascend the Davidic throne on Zion. And this is why Yahweh says, I install this one, this righteous man upon David's throne. This righteous man is Yahweh's anointed. This righteous man is the Christ. And so notice the the words that God speaks specifically to the Messiah in Psalm 2, verse 7. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. The decree here, or the covenant, was the document that authenticated the reign and the rule of the heir. So when he says, I will tell of the decree... The reference here that the psalmist makes is to that covenant promise that God gave to David, that one of your heirs will sit upon the throne. I will tell of the decree, I will tell of the covenant promise that God made to David's heir. And it it, it points back to that covenantal promise. And it's a prophecy, therefore, that goes back to the promise, but it's rooted, we can say, even more deeply, all the way in the recesses of eternity in the covenant of redemption, that covenant among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, where the Father covenanted to the Son, you shall be the, uh, the, the covenant mediator. You will be the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. You will be the redeemer of the elect. And so when the psalmist says, I will tell of the decree, it's another way of saying, I will tell of the covenant promise that you made to David. But what does this decree specifically say? The decree says, you are my son, which I think undoubtedly takes us back again to that covenant promise to David. What did God say to David in 2 Samuel 7, 14? I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son, I will tell of the decree, you are my son. You are my son. This is also the same, I think, web of texts that constitute the foundation of God's declaration and fatherly approval over over his son at his baptism. Remember what he said there at the baptism of Christ as the heavens were torn open and the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus as he came up out of the waters and the father declared and bellowed over his son, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I will tell it a decree, you are my son. And if the Messiah of Psalm 2 is also the righteous man of Psalm 1, this tells us that the Messiah is perfectly obedient to the will of his heavenly Father. As Paul would later say in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 5 and following, of course, Jesus was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And in fact, we have to recognize that this is ultimately what is bound up in being a son. A son is an image bearer. A son is somebody who bears the likeness of his father. You know, I I was just telling my wife the other day, I was looking at some family photos. And I said, I don't know, I think it's unfair. And she said, what's unfair? Uh, I said, the only thing that I can detect in the children's faces is my nose. That's it. Uh, aside from that, they look like you. They, it just looks like three copies of you. And I feel left out. I feel like I'm the trash can kid. It's like, well, where did we get him? Well, we found him in the trash. You know, he, he doesn't look like the rest of us. 
Well, when we're talking about image and likeness in the Bible, it's not just simply a physical resemblance as much as that plays into it. You know, how many times have you walked into a room and you've seen two people and you say, those people are related. That young man looks exactly like his father or that young woman looks just like her mother. It's not just about a physical resemblance. Image bearing is not so much about a physical resemblance as much as it is an ethical resemblance. So that when the son, as the incarnate Messiah, is the one who is the perfect, uncreated image of God, that he is the only begotten son of God, that he is the image of God, that he is the word of God, All of these things tell us that if you want to see what the Father and who the Father is, you can look at the Son and see him in the Son. Another way to say this is, this is why Jesus is perfectly obedient to the will of his Father, because he is a perfect ethical and moral reflection of who the Father is. I will tell of the decree, you are my son. And so this is the obedient man of Psalm 1 who ascends the throne uh, in, in Psalm 2. But of this obedient son, the psalmist also says this in Psalm 2.7, I will tell of the decree, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Today I have begotten you. This is ultimately language about a royal inauguration. This isn't language about moving from non-existence to existence, such as our own conception uh, and in existence, uh, where we are one moment, we are unbegotten because we do not exist, and then the next moment uh, we are begotten because we have been conceived and we begin to exist. That's not what this language is. Rather, this is covenantal inauguration language. In other words, if we can paint this type of language in terms of, say, a presidential inauguration in our own country, is that when an ordinary citizen climbs the steps of the Capitol building in Washington, D.C., during you know, the conclusion of an election cycle, we can say as a nation, today we have begotten you. You stepped up upon these uh, Capitol steps as an ordinary citizen, but you walk off as the President of the United States. We have begotten you in that sense. You have been inaugurated in that sense. This is the way that the psalmist is using this language. I will tell of the decree. I will tell of the Davidic covenantal promise. You are my son. You are a perfect reflection of who I am. You are righteous. And because of your obedience, your obedience unto death, today I have begotten you. I have installed you upon Mount Zion as my uh, holy uh, anointed one. This is how the New Testament interprets this verse in Psalm 2-7. For example, in Acts chapter 13, verses 32 and 33, Jesus, as it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son today, I've begotten you, speaking of his resurrection from the dead. Because of Jesus' perfect obedience, even unto death, he was inaugurated and installed as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This is, this is the precise way in which the Apostle Paul uses these very concepts, echoing to many, to great extent, Psalms 1 and 2, when he says at the opening of Romans chapter 1, verses 1 and following, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, 
called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who is descended from David according to the flesh. Think of the promise to David, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection of the dead. I will tell it a decree. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And it's because of Jesus' perfect obedience, not only is he installed upon Zion as God's anointed king, but the father says to the son in Psalm 2, verse 8, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Because you have been obedient unto death, as Paul later writes, You have the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Think, for example, of Jesus' claim at the end of the Gospel of Matthew as he sends out the church and he commissions us, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. Because of the son's obedience, the obedience of the righteous man of Psalm 1, he is obedient unto the point of death, even death on the cross, and he is therefore installed, and he is the Messiah of Psalm 2. So we've seen the promise, we've seen the prophecy, this prophetic declaration of the, the work of Christ, which brings us to our third and final point about the power and that what are, the, what, are, what are the implications? What's the significance uh, for the church as well as for our individual Christian walk? I think in a word we can say that what Psalms 1 and 2 present is they give us the power of the gospel unto salvation. First for the Jew and then for the Greek, as Paul says in Romans. Its power does not lie in placing the specter of the law and its requirement for perfect obedience in our path so that we might somehow try to ascend Zion's throne by our own power, might, and effort. There's only one Messiah, one Christ, and our place is clear. Notice here at the beginning of Psalm 1, the end of Psalm 2, the thematic bookends. How Psalm 1 begins and then Psalm 2 ends. Notice this in verse 1, Psalm 1, 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners. Nor stands in the way of sinners. And then notice here how Psalm 2, verse 12 ends. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. He warns us, he shows us the righteous man does not stand in the way of sinners. Then he unfolds the person and work of Christ. And then there in verse 12, he says, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. He begins with the way, he ends with the way. Plain and simple, he's telling us, seek refuge in Christ. Seek refuge in Christ. Take shelter in Him. Seek the forgiveness of your sins in Him. By God's grace alone, through faith alone, seek shelter beneath the blanket of Christ's perfect obedience and suffering. 
Such is the power of this passage that when you believe, you are freed from the weight of sin and from the guilt and, and, and its stain and its power. The Father looks upon you not as you are in yourself, sinful, wicked, but rather he looks upon you as one who has been united to the one righteous man who stands not in the counsel of the, or sorry, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. What happens if you do not seek shelter in Christ? Psalm 2, verse 9, he will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Psalm 1, 5, the, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The only way to avoid this judgment is to kiss the son, lest he be angry. It's to seek shelter in him. This means, beloved, that we have to repent of our sin, and if we haven't already, and seek shelter in Christ. This must be the church's unceasing message. This is the very reason for our existence. But we should also recognize that when we seek shelter from God's judgment, the unbelieving world is going to completely reject us for this. They're not going to sit idly by and say, hey, this seems like a good option. You know, it's like I was reading an article today in a, in a Christian periodical that said that it seems like evangelicalism has gone through a, a, a shift in, in its stance towards culture. Up until about 1994, Christianity was seen in a positive light. Then from about 1994 till about, say, 2004, this author was claiming that Christianity uh, began to sit now in a neutral position, or the culture saw Christianity from a neutral standpoint. Previously, positively, neutral from 94 to 2004, and that since 2004, the culture has taken an overtly hostile and negative stance towards Christian faith. Well, that progression may be true. I want to say that the psalmist paints a much bleaker picture than that. A much bleaker picture. What does he say about the righteous man who ascends the throne of Zion? Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2. Why do the nations rage? And the people plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. When we seek shelter in Christ, we will find opposition. And in fact, this is the very opposition that Christ himself faced. This is the very opposition that Christ himself faced. In Acts chapter 2, we see this, that the peoples plotted against Jesus. And this is how the apostle Peter characterized the crucifixion of Christ as a fulfillment of Psalm 2. And if we are seeking shelter in Christ... If we are seeking shelter in his power, the power of his salvation, then as Christ told us on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, we will be persecuted. We will be persecuted. As they persecuted Christ, so they will persecute his body, the church. And in Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 4, verses 25 through 29, this is the very passage of scripture that Peter and John quote. They quote Psalm 2. And the persecution of the church by persecuting the head, they quote Psalm 2 after they themselves had just been persecuted. 
Acts chapter 4, verses 25 and following. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. What the apostles there are saying is they're saying that the persecution that they cast upon Christ is the same persecution that falls upon the church. But nevertheless, they pray and they ask the Lord and they say, give us the boldness to continue testifying to the truth of Psalm 1 and 2, the truth of the gospel. Christ is, of course, always here to comfort, to encourage, and to embolden us. But we nevertheless must take this this encouragement, this, this boldness from Christ, and herald this message. And so this means we should not fear the machinations of kings and governments who set themselves up against the Lord and against his anointed. We shouldn't fear unbelievers who scoff at the message of the gospel. We shouldn't fear even family and friends who reject the power of Psalm 1 and 2 and the gospel that it proclaims. We should pray for boldness and courage in heralding the gospel and telling others of their need to seek shelter in the sun, to to kiss the sun lest he be angry. That we would have boldness to tell the unbelievers we know that they must seek shelter in Christ. But most importantly, we always have to hope and pray that we ourselves would seek shelter in Christ so that his righteousness would become our righteousness, so that his holiness would be our holiness. So, beloved, rejoice that we need not settle for an imperfect hero. Praise God for his faithfulness to his promise to David to set upon uh, Israel's throne his heir, King Jesus. Praise God for his faithfulness to fulfill his prophecy to send his son to ascend Zion's throne. And give thanks that through his uh, obedience in his life, death, and resurrection, that he has given us hope, he has given us life, he has given us shelter against the wrath of God that we so rightly deserve for our sin. We should pray that we would seek shelter in Christ, that we would pursue holiness through him, and that we would be filled with boldness to tell others of the Father's beloved Son, the one in whom he is well pleased, the righteous man of Psalm 1, who has ascended the throne of Israel in Psalm 2, and who has brought salvation to his people. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father God, we are grateful for Jesus Christ, the righteous man. The righteous man who neither walked in the counsel of the wicked, nor stood in the way of sinners, nor sat in the seat of scoffers. We pray and ask, O Lord, that you would Fill our hearts with praise and thanksgiving for his perfect obedience, for his righteousness and his holiness, for that he was willing to suffer the consequences of our sin because you sent him. We pray, Father, that we would seek no other remedy for our sin save but in the gospel of Christ, and that when we read of the blessings of Psalm 1, that we would not try to seek them under our own steam, but rather by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we would seek those blessings in him, that you would give us the wisdom that we need to seek shelter in him, that you would give us repentance that we might uh, flee from our sins and that we would seek forgiveness of them through him.
That, O Lord, that you would uh, fill us with a desire for his holiness and righteousness to manifest his his image bearing in our lives that we too would be uh, good reflections of your holiness and of your righteousness, that we too would be your sons, that we would be your image bearers in bearing the image of Christ. But, O Lord, we also pray that you would give us courage and boldness, that we would take shelter in the power of Christ's gospel, that we would uh, want to tell others of this message, and that we would not fear the powers of this world, but rather that we would seek shelter in the power of Christ who rules in this world as well as in the next. We pray that in so doing, you would glorify yourself in our midst, that you would sanctify us, and that you would herald your glory. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.